Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today we're going to be picking back up on our Policing in Austin series. We took a little break the past few weeks because of the winter storm. Um, by focusing on an aspect of police reform that we've actually seen some progress in. Uh, now, before we begin, I, I just want to acknowledge up front that, of course, the story is not 100% perfect, but it's a pretty good example of how police reforms have happened in the recent past and how we might be able to continue to adapt that process to make it more equitable in the future. So today we're going to be talking about mental health and policing. Here it is. There's a lot of places where I could start this story, but I think it's important to begin in 2016 when an Austin police officer named Jeffrey Freeman shot and killed David Joseph, an unarmed black 17-year-old. And at the time, David was naked and appeared to be suffering from a mental health crisis. The shooting sparked outrage throughout the city and provoked a whole host of questions, like why was a taser or other de-escalation tactic not used? Why wasn't an officer trained in mental health response dispatched to the scene? In the end, Officer Freeman was fired because his use of force didn't meet the objectively reasonable standard. However, he still received a $35,000 settlement from the city of Austin after he appealed his firing, and a grand jury also declined to indict him. Then, in 2018, the city conducted an audit on APD's response to mental health-related incidents. And the most damning finding was that the audit analyzed a report of fatal police encounters in the 15 most populous U.S. cities, plus Seattle, and they found out that Austin had the highest per capita rate of fatal police shootings involving those believed to be experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, Here are a few other key findings from that report. Um, One is that since 2018, APD has reported a 95% increase in mental health-related calls, From 2014 through 2017, these calls accounted for about 7% of all calls for service. Uh, Another finding was that APD does meet state requirements for crisis intervention training for all of its officers. However, APD's certified training does not cover specialized de-escalation and mental health crisis topic areas or include direct interactions with the community serve, or offer regular refreshers to update officer knowledge and skills. And peer city police departments, on the other hand, do appear to include more of these best practice elements in their certified trainings. Another finding was that APD does not include all best practice elements related to responding to mental health crisis situations, and specialized resources are not always available when needed. In addition, officers may not have all the relevant information they need when responding to these calls for service. And what that basically means is that APD does have officers that receive special crisis intervention and mental health officer certification training, but those officers are not always the ones who are dispatched to mental health emergencies. Okay, so another finding is that APD does not follow best practice guidance to track and review crisis intervention incidents to improve outcomes. APD and other cities reported difficulties tracking and reviewing these incidents. And again, more specifically, what that means is that all the reports categorized with a mental health related title are automatically reviewed by crisis intervention unit staff. However, that review is focused on whether follow-up action is needed for that person. 
The review does not look at how the officer handled the situation or identify opportunities to improve the interaction to produce better outcomes in future cases. So that's that 2018 report. And basically what happens is this report led to yet another report. Governments love to have reports. And the next one was done by the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute and included a list of recommendations on how APD and the city could better respond to mental health emergencies. And there were six recommendations that came out of that report. And here's what they are. Number one is that the city create a program and response advisory function within the existing Travis County Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice Advisory Committee. Number two is that we create a mental health crisis call identification and management training for all call takers at our 911 call center. Number three is that we integrate mental health clinicians directly on the 911 dispatch floor to participate at an earlier triage point with call takers and divert calls to the most appropriate resources and provide support and appropriate information to officers or medics on the scene. Number four is to sustain the expanded mobile crisis outreach team or EMCOT, including the use of telehealth capabilities to expand immediate access to crisis screening. Number five is to coordinate with Austin Police Department's crisis intervention team activities with EMS's community health paramedic program in order to shift from a reactive to a proactive orientation. And last but not least, number six is develop a what to do educational materials in Spanish and Asian American languages so that constituents know what to tell first responders and what to do to ensure that effective communication is used when first responders arrive on the scene. So that's that report as well. So that report was issued in May 2019. And when that report was issued, which was more action focused, you know, and included these recommendations, changes started to be made, but pretty slowly and in phases. And then in August 2020, City Council included full funding of the mental health diversion program in its 2020-2021 budget. And then even more recently in February 2021, a new program launched. So now when Austinites call 911, they'll hear, Austin 911, do you need police, fire, EMS, or mental health services? And so the city of Austin is actually the first city in the country to launch this kind of mental health diversion as a fourth option when calling 911, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and when this fourth option was added to 911, Austin City Council member Greg Kassar wrote on his Facebook page, quote, for too long, we have expected our law enforcement to do the job of a social worker or mental health professional. We know our residents are safer when a behavioral health crisis is met with healthcare. We're able to set up mental health options at 911 because of our transformation of police budgets in response to Black Lives Matter, end quote. So how did we get here? And what does it mean to have a mental health diversion at the 911 call center? To answer that question, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded a few weeks ago with Marissa Aguilar. Marissa is the practice manager over the expanded mobile crisis outreach team at Interval Care. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> Basically, Marissa is deeply involved in our community's efforts to divert mental health crises from police response. Let's go ahead and listen to that interview and she'll explain it all for us. All right, I am here with Marissa, and today we're going to be talking about integral care. Um, I'm really excited to get to take the time to chat because 
this is a, a program and an organization I've heard a lot of and a lot about over the past few years and but don't really know that much about how it actually works on the ground, you know? And there's been a lot of news headlines lately about mental health and policing and how we can better serve um, people undergoing mental health crises. And this is an area that you all are familiar with and have been doing work in for many, many years. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Um, so let's just start like big picture, integral care, what is it? Integral Care is the local mental health authority of Travis County and the local intellectual and developmental disability authority of Travis County. So we serve children and adults who um, are experiencing behavioral health issues, have a diagnosis of developmental disabilities, substance use issues, housing issues, um, and really focused on ensuring that we um, get the services that people need during to support them in their mental health um, process. We provide um, crisis services as well, and that's where um, the, my team falls under. We um, provide a telephonic service. We have a 24-7 crisis helpline, which is 512-472-HELP. And anybody in the community can call that number and um, get access to information about our agency, where their nearest clinic is, what types of services we have, um, what other resources might be available to them um, that are not resources connected to our agency, but might best help support them, as well as um, a hotline that provides emotional support to individuals that might be experiencing a crisis. We also have a urgent walk-in clinic for individuals that um, would prefer to walk in um, to see a clinician um, and have a crisis assessment done. And then we have our mobile crisis outreach teams who are able to get deployed out into the community and provide an assessment for individuals at the site of their crisis, wherever that might be. And that could look like um, in someone's home, someone's place of employment, it could be um, at a school, wherever that person is experiencing a crisis, we will go. Yeah, and so um, just real quick for clarification, are you all a government department or agency or a separate nonprofit organization? We're quasi-governmental nonprofit um, organization. Got it. Um, and so one thing you mentioned there was the uh, mobile outreach, mobile crisis outreach team. Mm-hmm. MCOT, right? Yes. <laughs> That's the acronym for it. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that program. Um, and so talk a little bit more about it. So basically, this is an issue that I think people have seen in the news and are becoming more aware of, right? Which is people undergoing these mental health crises and they're at home, maybe they're with their family and um, things escalate. And um, sometimes the police are called when they might perhaps may not be the best people to call, but people don't know who else to call, right? And it's a stressful situation. And um, that is what this team is designed to handle, right? Correct. Um, I'll kind of back up from the yeah. beginning and, and give you a little bit of history um, because every local mental health authority in the state of Texas has a version of a mobile crisis outreach team or an MCOT team. Here in Travis County, uh, I feel very fortunate because we do have a robust system. Our MCOT team actually started in 2006 
and they receive all of their referrals from our community's 24-7 crisis helpline, which is that 512-472-HELP number. And what happens is when someone in the community calls, whether they're in crisis or a loved one is in crisis, um, a, a team of clinicians can get deployed out to the community wherever that um, crisis might be happening or occurring. And so it is very beneficial for individuals that have barriers to accessing services. So specifically, we wanna reduce um, barriers related to transportation, finances, or lack of um, family support to help navigate the system. And so that's really um, the focus of the MCOT teams and ensuring that we're getting people access to services if they have barriers or challenges to, to get that. What happens is we go out into the community and we really focus on ensuring that people are getting a thorough clinical assessment and we're able to um, provide the most appropriate care during their moment of crisis, focusing on a least restrictive option for them. The majority of time they want, we want to ensure that we can keep people in the community so that they're not having to access more restrictive settings such as emergency rooms or psychiatric inpatient hospitals if it's not needed. And research shows that um, when people are provided with more immediate care at the appropriate level of care, they have better outcomes for their recovery process. So that team started in 2006. And then um, in 2013, we were able to add a team, the expanded mobile crisis outreach team. Um, and that team came from an 1115 transformation Medicaid waiver project. And the same mission and model um, is what this team really strives to do based on that classic model that we have with our MCOT team that started in 2006. And the only difference that we have is that the expanded team focuses on referrals specifically from first responder partners. Mm. So different entities within our county and city are, have the ability to dispatch us out immediately if they identify that someone's in crisis. So we have um, Austin Police Department, Travis County Sheriff's Office, EMS, as well as several smaller jurisdictions within the city. And then we also have the ability to do jail diversion at central booking for people coming in. And then we see um, individuals at their release from the correctional complex to help with re-entry back into the community and connection to mental health resources. Wow. So really wanting to fill that safety net um, for people that don't necessarily know 472 help, but call 911, a first responder goes, and then they now have the ability to um, request a clinician on site at that, at that time. Right. So I want to talk a little, so Basically, the way the system worked before is that what the 911 dispatcher, perhaps, or maybe a police officer, once they arrived on the scene, would sort of notice or recognize this seems more like a mental health call, and then they would call the EMCOT team. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then what just happened recently is I guess we kind of stepped that up a level and made it so that right in the beginning, when someone calls 911, they're given the option 
of, uh, I guess that 911 operator will now say, do you want police, fire, EMS, or mental health services right from the beginning? Exactly. Yes. So we actually integrated, so the Integral Cares Expanded Mobile Crisis Outreach Team began integrating into the 911 call center in December of 2019. So we have had a clinician that is on the floor at the 911 call center available to receive transferred calls when APD call takers have identified that there's not a public safety issue, there's not a medical emergency, but what might be going on is mental health related They transfer that call over to our clinician on the floor, and we are able to take that call over, do our clinical screening and triage, identify the needs of that individual, and figure out what is the best option for them. So that can look like um, providing emotional support. It can be connecting them to their ongoing treatment team if they are already connected with integral care. It could be um, just you know, crisis de-escalation, or it could be that we deploy out our own expanded mobile crisis outreach team into the community to do that assessment, diverting police from ever having to respond to those calls. So really, really um, what we've been able to do since we started this project in 2013 was really figure out a way to intercept and intervene um, more upstream in that crisis continuum process when people are calling 911. Right. That's what you see. Each program kind of iterates on each other there. Yeah. And the newest iteration that we have um, is so exciting. Um, Beginning February 1st, we added the fourth option to um, the 911 call script. So now when someone calls 911 in Austin, they hear, are you calling for police, fire, EMS, or mental health services? And if they select mental health services, they can be directly connected with a clinician on the floor, again, with the goal of um, diverting police response when it's not necessary. Because the majority of the time when people are in a mental health crisis, police aren't necessarily needed. And having a person who is expert um, go out and provide that assessment in an environment where you feel comfortable and safe, again, has better outcomes for that individual. We're showing up in plain clothes, unmarked vehicles, lights and sirens. So we, we automatically are a resource for people, not just bringing expertise, but de-escalating that situation and that crisis for that person. Right. And I suppose also, you know, freeing up police officers time to um, be devoted to their, you know, more of their core roles and responsibilities. I don't think the original intent or how most people imagine it is that police officers are supposed to be the ones who are um, handling mental health emergencies in our community in the first place. Right. And, and that's why we really wanted to give them that resource when we expanded our, our team in 2013. Um, because officers often, you know, they wear many hats. And um, although we do provide training for them, um, the expanded mobile crisis outreach team and integral care actually do a lot of their mental health training. Um, we, we recognize that um, there's always that need for that expert intervention when someone's in crisis. 
So giving them the ability to recognize signs and symptoms and know the resources to get people out there really helps bring you know, that service to someone as quickly as possible to help them during their time of need and really gets first responders back out into the community so that they're available to handle public safety issues and medical emergencies and they're not tied up on calls that they don't necessarily have to be on. Right. And I'm not sure um, if you have much numbers or anything on this, because I know the program is very new, but I know that, you, like you mentioned, the goal is to divert as many of these as possible. I don't know if they're, how do you decide if a police officer is warranted in a situation to come out to the call? Like what's the approach there and what are we starting to sense as a reasonable diversion rate or goal? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I can tell you that from the first year of our project, so um, we go through the uh, a fiscal year, beginning December of 2019, when we started off to the end of our fiscal year, September 30th, we diverted 83% of calls um, to, I'm sorry, 83% of the calls that were transferred to our clinicians at the 911 call center um, were diverted from police response. Um, and the way that we really look at, you know, what can we handle on our own and what gets um, referred back to police is, is two things. One, we're looking at safety for the individual. Um, is there an imminent risk of harm to that person or to someone in their environment? In those instances, it would not be appropriate for a clinician to go out um, for safety purposes. So that's when we transfer back to police so that there's that more immediate response um, and that person is safe. Now, when that happens, police can still, you know, call us out to the scene and we can still start our assessment um, or we can send a, a, a team out in, in conjunction with that officer. But that's really the main criteria of um, ensuring that there's, there's safety um, parameters in place um, for that individual that's in crisis. The other times we transfer back are for individuals that are requesting police to respond. Um, so even if they're transferred to us and we let them know that a counselor can come out and talk with them and give them the options for mental health support, um, a lot of times, you know, people will still say, that's not something I'm interested in. I, I really do want police to come out. And if we respect their choice and we, we transfer those calls back. Yeah, it makes me um, wonder, or I know that there's also a big role that these um, outreach teams play with our homeless community as well. And, and that tends to be a group that I think has the police called on them a lot when um, perhaps the average person who makes those calls just doesn't know who else to call. Mm -hmm. In those situations, I guess this provides another option or opportunity, you know, opportunity for a different kind of intervention. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the, um, how these teams can serve our homeless community. Sure. I, I mean, this, we, uh, the teams can serve anybody in our community. Um, I am a, a strong believer that, you know, anybody can go into crisis at any time in their life. Um, and you don't have to necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. 
So, you know, whatever is presenting with that particular person or that particular issue, we are able to go. Um, just what we do on the phone is just ask questions related to what's going on in that moment um, to see what the appropriate response would be for that individual. So if you're calling into 911, um, similar to what the, the call takers do, they're gonna ask you multiple questions about what's going on, what's your location, things of that nature. As a, as a clinician, we're doing the same thing as well, but we might be gathering additional information um, as far as history. Um, it doesn't matter if you have history or not. Say, for example, you're a passerby um, and you see someone in a park who you think might be in need of help or might be um, having a really bad day. If you could just give us location and what's going on and how that person is, um, you know, what their behavior is, we can definitely um, work with whatever information we get to figure out what that best next step is for that individual. Right. And perhaps, you know, I wonder if the call taker also is able to help the caller figure out what is the best response. I think, especially as this is new, most people might just say police mm -hmm. just because that's all they've ever known. Um, I guess are the call takers also able to assess the situation and help divert the call in that way? Absolutely. So they would be doing what they were doing prior to what the fourth option was. Um, they're, they're listening in and they're tuning into any signs that they might, that someone might be experiencing a, a crisis. Um, so maybe things they, they might say or things that they hear on the phone um, might be an indicator that there is some type of mental health component. Because as you stated, you know, when someone is in a crisis, um, it's, it's very difficult to kind of, um, you know, follow prompts and, and know exactly what to do. And so if they do select police, but it, it's a mental health crisis, but there's not a public safety issue, there are still questions that are being asked to determine if there's not a, a public safety issue or medical emergency, those calls are still going to get transferred to our, our staff at the call center. Right. And then as far as the outreach teams go, I noticed on your website that a component of them is to also follow up with those individuals. Can you talk about that? Because that seems, you know, so important. And when we're talking about health in a broader, um, you know, sphere, it's not just like a singular incident. Um, can you talk about how you try and help people after that one immediate call? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when it, when we go out and provide our first assessment, that's just our first contact with that individual. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that what, what generated that crisis or what escalated that crisis issue for that individual is going to dissolve after that, that first assessment. So it's so important for us to do that follow-up care um, to ensure that people are stabilized and that we can link them to ongoing services. That's our goal so that we can reduce future crisis episodes from occurring again. So we can serve individuals for up to 90 days um, for follow-up care. Those 90 days are all community-based services. So again, we're meeting people where they're at, 
in the community, um, where their preferences are, where they're most comfortable, um, to really figure out how can we get them connected to their most appropriate resource. Um, another cool thing that both mobile teams have is access to a mobile medical provider. So our mobile medical providers also are community-based, go um, into the community with us, do medication evaluation and prescribe medications. And that really helps with the stabilization in the community so that they're not having to access more restrictive settings and they can really focus on their recovery process in their own environment where they're feeling safe and comfortable. Got it. So they don't have to go to a pharmacy and try and put in the subscription, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, we can help with all of that. And, you know, it's not, um, we don't want to unnecessarily utilize uh, an emergency room for for that type of, you know, those are for medical emergencies. So if we can do that evaluation in the home, we, we'd much prefer to do that. Um, if it's someone that we can safety plan with them and keep them in their homes with their support system or our team coming out and prescribe that medication so that they don't have to go to an inpatient hospital, then that's something that we strive for as well. Right. And what kind of staff do you um, have for this whole program? It seems like a lot of work and potentially a lot of calls coming in. I know that the most recent budget, I think allotted more staff to hopefully grow this program, but how many people are working on it and are there plans to expand or? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Feel very fortunate here. And again, Travis County to be a part of this team. It has continued to expand since I I started as a clinician the first year in 2013, um, we were 22 clinicians at that time responding to first responder partners. Um, in 2019, we received the additional funding from the city of Austin to integrate into the 911 call center and then provide telehealth services um, for, for first responder partners. Um, that increased uh, another 6.5 um, staff. And then to date where we're at the most recent iteration to put us 24 um, seven, we're at 41 staff. And our team is comprised of um, mental health professionals um, where they have um, provisional license or full licensure as professional counselors, social workers or marriage and family therapists. Um, we really pride ourselves in being um, diverse um, in, in not just our clinical licensures, but our areas of expertise as far as clinically what, what we can provide um, in the community, um, diversity as far as race, ethnicity, gender, and languages spoken, so that we can really assure that the team that is going out is really is really meeting the needs and really serving the community that we have. Right. And I know this um, new addition of the fourth option for the 911 call center, um, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, are there other cities that are doing this kind of work or have integrated that that you look to is like, where does Austin sit, I guess, in, in this uh, rollout? Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Um, so uh, the the integration into the 911 call center and telehealth services came from uh, Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute recommendation in 2019. 
And um, per the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, um, we are the first in the nation. Um, Austin is the first in the nation to add a mental health service option when someone is calling into 911. So it is, it is so huge that this is something um, that we're doing um, a resource for our community so that they have more timely intervention, um, more appropriate individuals that are geared towards what's going on during their moment of crisis um, to really um, help them. Um, it gives better outcomes for their recovery and it's cost savings uh, for the community as well. Really, and I, and I imagine, you know, it can't come at a better time or a more needed time. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And then what about when we look into the future, you know, um, obviously this is a big step forward, but I imagine that as we continue to roll out the program, we'll be able to learn from it and adapt. And what do you hope to see in the future that we can continue to grow and where we can continue to provide better, better mental health services for Austinites? You know, I think that we continue to evolve and um, figure out what's going to be the best need for our community, um, allocating the, the resources most appropriately um, for um, mental health to go out for mental health response. Um, if there's not a public safety issue or medical emergency, ensuring that those first responders are really available to handle their area of expertise. Um, and then really looking at response to a mental health crisis is a healthcare response um, and shifting that focus. And what we're looking forward to in this upcoming year is actually um, joining uh, EMCOT clinician with EMS community health paramedic as a response team from um, the diversions that we're doing at the 911 call center so that um, when people are getting that initial assessment, we're looking at the whole health of the individual. So the mental health aspect, as well as the medical aspect, um, because oftentimes they're co-occurring and um, really focusing on that whole health to get more immediate um, services in both realms for people is what I'm looking forward to in this upcoming year. And then seeing how um, the volume increases because this fourth option um, has been added and then reducing that stigma of mental health um, so that we can get people the care that they need. Um, and a community health paramedic, just for a definition's sake, what is that? What makes, what's different than just a regular paramedic? So they are, they're paramedics, but their area of focus is really um, focused on doing more um, follow-up care as opposed to the immediate calls that um, the other paramedics and EMS are doing. Um, so they, they are doing the follow-up care to help reduce um, frequent ER admissions or frequent ambulance visits for individuals that have chronic medical needs. And uh, I don't know if you'll, you know the answer to this or if we will at some point, but do we have any idea of what percentage of calls just coming into our 911 call center are mental health or could be mental health? I guess it's hard because we haven't been, we might not have been collecting that data, but in thinking about this program growing, like, are we talking 1%, 5%, 10, you know, like how many of the calls coming in in general are about mental health? Do we have a, a vague idea? 
I don't, um, but I, I would say that's a great question for Austin Police Department um, so that they can be able to give that accurate data. Um, I can tell you the data that we have. Um, I know that um, we, the percentages of diversion that I gave for our first year, um, the number of calls that we've had since we've added the fourth option have increased um, 34%. So wow. I know it's only been two weeks, but I think that's a significant difference in calls that have are being transferred over to us now. And we're actually having a higher percent diversion from police than we did in our first year. So we're at 86% diverting from police response due to the increase and that fourth option that's being added. Wow. So clearly having that fourth option is helping people to be able to identify that. Okay. Yes. We just want to go right the mental health route immediately. Yeah, and I think so many people, what we heard before this fourth option happened, um, when the call takers transferred over to our clinicians was, we had no idea this was an option. Mm -hmm. We did not know there was a community hotline. We didn't know there was teams that go out to people's homes to check on them. We just always thought that's what police did. And so I think it's, you know, getting that word out and letting people know that these are options for them. These are resources for them and it, it will better assist them during their moment of crisis. Well, and so before we close, I just want to give you one last uh, chance to sort of share about integral care. If people um, are in need of your services um, or if they have family members who are in need of those services, what are the best ways that they can um, access them. Obviously, we know we have this 911 option, but maybe for longer term care or uh, less immediate or emergency care. Sure. Um, I just want to kind of say um, thank you to um, Ann Kitchens and the council for really um, being very supportive of our project and the expansion and the integration into the call center. Um, it's really um, been a huge benefit to the community and we so appreciate their support and um, being champions for this, um, for this very um, important uh, issue. Um, yeah, it makes me think, can I, can I chime in there? You know, I think yeah. this is a perfect example of like, a community project happening and moving forward, you know, sometimes with government, it can be frustrating and you feel like we have these ideas or proposals and they don't happen and they sit on a shelf. And obviously I know things probably, especially for the ones who are in it never happen as quickly as we want, but this is like, I've seen the community working on this for a while. You can see the iterations and it did, it, it happened. We, we kind of made a decision and we did move forward with it. <laughs> yes, and it's so exciting. And we so appreciate the council's support and um, moving this forward and getting our community the help that it needs during their moment of crisis. It's been so beneficial and that we've had so many success stories of the clients that we've spoken to at the call center and that we've seen out in the community. Um, so, I think that that's, that's something that just wanted to say, this has been a community effort uh, to help our community um, when they're experiencing a crisis. But if anybody um, wants to um, access services, whether they be in crisis or if they just want to know about mental health resources, um, 
our crisis helpline, which is 24 seven is um, 512-472-HELP or 4357. That is a number that you can call for emotional support, crisis counseling, um, or just getting to know um, integral care better or resources in the community. Always open um, for people to call and access um, if needed. Great. Well, thank you, Marissa, so much for taking the time and for the work that you do every day. It's so needed and appreciated. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's the latest info about our city's mental health diversion programs. But the shift from a criminal justice to a healthcare response for those experiencing mental health crises goes beyond just reforming our police department. It's also about expanding access to mental health care and services throughout our community and destigmatizing mental health more broadly. To tell us more about the evolution of mental health services available in Austin and Travis County, we're going to listen to an interview I recorded in February with Karen Rainis. Karen is the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness Central Texas, also called NAMI. All right, I am here with Karen and we're going to be talking some today about um, mental health and policing. Um, We've been doing a whole series of episodes on policing in Austin and um, I've been really looking forward to having the opportunity to speak with you and, and others in the community who are working on this particular aspect because, you know, I think when we talk to folks or when the city's explaining, what does it mean to reimagine public safety or what kind of things are people working on? This mental health component seems to be the one that is furthest along that people have been working on for a really long time. And I think that seems to make the most clear sense to, to the average person as well, is that we know we have a problem here. So I guess to start, I wanted to see if you could set the stage for us a bit. Um, In Austin, I know we had this report come out a few years ago around mental health and policing. Um, And, and, and it's, it's been an issue facing our community, but I wonder like high level, when we talk about um, how mental health and policing intersect, what do you say, or what, what are we seeing happen? What's, what are some of the problems? Well, I think fundamentally, if you want to start Um, at this place where we need to understand some of the sort of historical background of why we are where we are today. So at at some point in our history, uh, by and large, most people living with serious mental illness, sometimes not with serious mental illness, but with mental illness. And we never, you know, at that point, we didn't have a clear understanding of exactly what it was or seeing it really as a health issue. And so we had institutions, asylums, Um, in our community, the Austin State Hospital, and state hospitals across the country um, had pretty robust um, numbers in terms of how many people were living there. And for many people that they lived there, like that was their lives, was living within that system. Mm -hmm. So at some point in time in the 60s, um, you know, we came to this realization that all of these people did not need to be institutionalized and that in fact, some of them could live and should live within their communities and their families, which in and of itself um, was a great thought, right? I mean, a great way to approach this and understanding the power of that we all need community and the power of living within our communities as we heal from any health issues. The problem was, is that we never took the next step in in ensuring that communities had 
the kinds of systems and supports to ensure that people could live independently or within their community and with supports living with mental health issues. So we said, here you go. We're not gonna institutionalize these people anymore, right? Um, and again, great and wonderful ideas. And for many people, their families did take them in, but we didn't build out the system of care. There was no continuum of care. So ultimately, when you look at data, what you will see is that um, now we have about that same number as people as we had institutionalized before this happened. Um, we have them now, instead of being in hospital settings and institutions, we have them in a different institution. We have them in our jails, right? Mm. So same numbers, if you look at them, it's just like all, all we did was migrate people into actually, uh, what we've done is we've criminalized um, now, um, you know, mental health issues. And so I think fundamentally, that's one of the core issues that I see is that we have to move toward being a community that understands mental health as a health issue. You know, I think it's very interesting that even in the language that we use and the way we approach it, we talk about physical health and we talk about mental health as mm -hmm. though they're two separate things. Well, I have news for you folks. Mental health is a brain health issue and your brain is in your body. So mental health is not only health, it's physical health and it's all connected. Just like if you've got something going on with your heart, it's likely to impact other parts of your systems. The same thing is true with our brain as well. And so there's this separation that we create because I think there's a couple of issues there. One is that in the midst of all of this, um, we're just now getting to the place where we're really investing the kind of research dollars that we needed to be doing around brain health issues. So for the longest period of time, we really didn't invest any um, real dollars into research. So um, some of that research is lagging. And so we don't have any good diagnostic tools. One, for diagnosing people with mental health issues. Do you know how it is, Amy, that you would be diagnosed with bipolar disorder if you were showing signs and symptoms of that? you would sit with a psychiatrist. Um, and we use the you know, DSM-5 and we go through this list of potential things that we might see in you. And we ask you a whole lot of questions. And then based on your responses, that's how we make a determination as to whether or not you have bipolar disorder. So um, it's an inexact science and it's not uncommon to find people that have had various diagnoses along the way because it's such an inexact science. So it's difficult to diagnose. So there's no sure, there's no blood test or anything that says, yes, this person has bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety. We base it on thoughts, action, and behavior, which I think is the second issue that we have around mental health issues. In many respects, I think mental health issues have a tendency to sort of steal our personhood away from us. Because unlike diabetes, which might impact how you process food, which means you might go to the bathroom more, be more thirsty, um, you know, people would see that sometimes physicality of you losing weight, right? All those indicators, but it won't impact how you think, act, and behave. And so that's the other issue around mental health is it impacts our brain and it does impact that. So we have in our culture, this very sticky myth around that mental health issues are somehow uh, a flaw in character or bad parenting, which also just kind of grew out of the psychiatric community, right? Because it was the moms that we blamed when, mm -hmm. you know, when children grew up and had mental health issues. 
So, um, so that's the other issue that we have is again, it impacts the way we think, act and behave. And I think that's important because we need to understand that then it, un it, it impacts the humanity and the personhood. So it's much easier than to say, this is a bad person they should go to jail that, you know, it's easier to criminalize something like that. Imagine us criminalizing cancer, or like I said, diabetes, so that if someone was in stage four of their cancer, we would all be up in arms if suddenly we put this person in jail because they had breast cancer and it was making them behave in a certain way. But that's what we do with people who are in stage four of their mental health issues, is we say, this is a bad and dangerous person and we need to put them in jail. Um, and so it, it is incredible. So you talk about how long it's taken for us to get here, where we are today. It is because it's so very complex and that historically much has happened. And I think that we need to understand that because of the things that I mentioned, you know, we talk a lot about the stigma of mental health issues, but I think it's important that we understand that stigma manifests itself as shame in mm. individuals and in families. Shame says, I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. And that's what it says to families as well that get a, a, a diagnosis of some kind of mental health issue. So then you have families and individuals that hunker down. They're sometimes reluctant to reach out to resources. They feel overwhelmed and they don't get the kind of support that they ought to get from their community. I will give you a perfect example. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about this work is I 10 years ago almost lost my own 18 year old daughter to suicide. And I often tell the experience of 17 months before that, um, my mother was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, a terminal brain tumor. Um, she only lived for a month after her diagnosis. And in that month, my sister and I, after her surgery, which was not very successful, we took her home and took care of her until her passing. And even though that was a really difficult time for our family, it also had all these wonderful gifts because we were surrounded by family and friends who brought us food, who helped us with our kids, who mowed our lawn, who ensured that we knew we were not alone as we were navigating this really serious health crisis in our family. But 17 months later, when I brought my daughter home from a psychiatric hospital and we were overwhelmed, still working full time, two other kids, not knowing exactly what we were doing, um, you know, we not, not one casserole showed up, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the reality is we didn't tell many people, we weren't ashamed of our daughter, but I will tell you that I felt shame, that I felt like I had failed as a parent. I sat in that psychiatric hospital and I went through the list of all the things that I had either done or failed to do as a mother. And that that was the reason that my daughter had ended up in the crisis she was in. I would have never done that if she ended up in the hospital because of cancer or being in stage four of, you know, a diabetic coma or anything like that. But do you understand how then mm -hmm. that shame manifests itself? And it keeps us from understanding this as the health issue that it is. It makes it easier for us to treat people as though they are criminals. So mm -hmm. the whole system gets caught up in the stickiness of this myth of this, you know, historical experience that we've all had. I think it's heightened for people of color. We know that there's a disproportionate number of um, black Americans who are diagnosed with mental health issues like schizophrenia. And the science shows us that that's highly unlikely. Um, so it's very interesting because of this, some of the things that have happened within the psychiatric system, you have the most vulnerable people in our community, people of color who many times don't have access um, and who um, 
who are even less likely to engage with the system because of the historical medical context of some of the um, issues that they have faced in the past. So it is very complex. And, and I think here's the good news in all that, because I think it's really easy in Austin, especially as you mentioned, the audit that came out in 2018. Wow, we got really wound up about that, right? And, and mm -hmm. pretty upset. And there was a lot, I mean, I, I think it greatly impacted APD. I think there was a great deal of hand wringing and, you know, and, and while that was an awful experience and I think it, it um, impacted the morale of the police department and I think angered many people, you know, in many respects, I think it was such a great thing that happened because it created the opportunity for us to say, let's look at the gaps. Like what is going on there that this is happening and let's address this as painful as it is. <laughs> if you want to look at it like a health issue, it's like me going to the doctor and finding mm -hmm. out, okay, I am 50 pounds overweight and therefore I'm in trouble if I don't do something and change the way I'm taking care of myself and start exercising and eating right, I'm gonna die early, I'm gonna die young. So it's sort of the same thing that our city has had to go through is having that audit in many respects said, wow, <laughs> we, we've got some, we, we need to lose some weight, right? right? There's some things that needs to happen here or otherwise our community is gonna to continue to really suffer needlessly. And I don't think that that's unique to Austin. I think it's happening across the country, if mm -hmm. not around the world. It's just that in our community, again, this audit was done um, that brought it to the surface. And then I think it gave us an opportunity to look at that and look at some recommendations in addressing that. And I think that that's important. I also think it's important that we as a community recognize the good that is happening, that in many respects, even though the tragedies that have happened, um, the loss of life that has happened, we can't diminish that. I think it's important that we never diminish the loss of life that has happened along the way. I do think that we've continued to move forward in terms of putting things into play in our community that don't exist in other communities. For instance, many people say um, police officers ought to have that training, ought to have mental health training. Well, I think it's since the 1990s, um, you know, Austin had a, developed a crisis intervention team and ensured that all officers had 40 hours of mental health training. That's been going on for quite a while. And in fact, we've been involved in that training. And then recently, because of some of the things that happened, the audit and also I think another incident that happened, Chief Manley did make that move that now all officers in the Austin Police Department have to have 80 hours of mental health training. And that's great. Like as we continue to say, what are the things that we can do um, to ensure that we are indeed creating a safer community for all people, as well as addressing the particular needs of people living with mental health issues. So that's great. Um, I think what you will see in some of the recommendations are things that are um, also important and helpful. In fact, I think there was a, a press release that went out yesterday kind of letting the community know that in fact, we're making these next steps right and ensuring that um, now when you call 911, you have a third option, right? That says, um, is this, you know, fire police or a mental health crisis? Yeah, that this is, a, that's a big deal. I mean, that's huge. a huge change. That's huge. And as far as we know, we're one of the first communities in the United States um, to make that move. So I think that's huge. And that came out of that audit. Like that didn't happen overnight either. Like back in 2019, we said, okay, let's start test driving this. So our local mental health authority, Integral Care, has been working with ABT, 
APD to really um, bring that together and ensure that um, we were test driving it to see how, how did that work? Was it working? And even now this first phase is going to be sort of a testing, you know, piloting of that. So I do think that there's some really good things in place that we're attempting to do. I think it creates the opportunity for us to engage in diversion from the criminal justice system earlier. Are you familiar with the sequential intercept model or have you heard that terminology? No, I haven't. So, yeah, so the it's it's SIM for short. So the, the sequential intercept model is this, it's a concept of mapping your community system to determine there's all these different intercepts. The higher up you go, um, is the more likely that someone's going to end up in jail, right? Because at some point they're in jail and all you're trying to do is divert them from ending up back in jail, right? Mm. So the earlier you have intercepts, the less likely that people are going to be ending up in the criminal justice system. So when we put 911, we have a 911 call center in which somebody can call and they can say, it's, I'm in a mental health crisis and they get diverted to a social worker who helps figure out what it is that they may need at that time, we're at intercept zero. Mm -hmm. So we've created this opportunity for someone to not have to engage at all with the criminal justice system because we have seen this then as a health issue. So I think so much to celebrate there, right? That that's, cause that's, we wanna have as many intercept zeros, right? Intercepts at that zero place as possible because the earlier that's preventive then we're ensuring that we don't ever have to engage with the criminal justice system at all. So I think that that's huge. Um, and, um, you know, and I think the reality is we're going to, I think we have a community and I think we have leadership in our community that is committed to ensuring that we're gonna keep looking at gaps in the system and, and ways of really moving resources into areas that might be more helpful in, in that intercept zero, right? right. So, I think the other place that we hopefully will start to see a shift in is what does it look like if instead of again having police officers respond to situations that again we have a, a team that might be a, a a paramedic you know a community health paramedic and also a social worker so that you're really then also you know so often people's mental health issues can often be triggered by other health issues you know someone who's living with diabetes and it's untreated and also has bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety. And, and if the diabetes isn't being managed well, it can trigger the onset of, of mm. you know, symptoms for their mental health issues. So when we're really treating the whole person, that goes back to treating it as a health issue and that we embody all of it. Um, and that's what happens when you bring in a, um, you know, a paramedic into that so that we're really looking at, are there other health issues going on that might be triggering what we're seeing? Right. And that's something that I know in our last budget cycle, our city devoted more money to hiring additional community health paramedics and I guess growing that program. Yes. So that, that's what I'm saying. I think those kinds of things are mm -hmm. happening. And I think, um, you know, we have to continue to just move forward in, in that direction. And then we have to understand that there's a multitude of um issues that, that sort of affect this as well. I mean, I think like housing is a huge right. issue, just well. gonna ask. you know, mm -hmm. we recently in that uh, committee that I'm on in the behavioral health and criminal justice advisory committee, as we were looking at membership in that committee, one of the uh, recommendations that we made was to include someone from ECHO, someone from that housing, right? Because what we're trying to do in that committee is bring all kinds of we want to make sure that everybody's at the table um, 
that needs to be at the table as we look at the whole system, because we're really looking at systemic change. I think it's important to recognize we're not talking about individual programs. We have to really see this as systemic change. So how is the system all connected? Well, if you don't have everybody at the table that's impacted by the system, then there's no way to understand that you're missing something. And there's no way to know that, oh, that, you know, Echo's already doing X, which actually fits in with this. So I think that I'm, I'm hopeful as we really approach this systemically that we're gonna to continue to see these kinds of changes in our community and that we're gonna to continue to be leaders um, across the country in terms of innovation uh, around this. Um, but it does take the, as Mayor Adler, I think refers to it as sort of the reimagining of how we can approach this. And I think it comes at a time when it's hugely important that we make it a priority because of the last year that we've all experienced. I mean, I think we're sitting now at a time where we're about to sort of mark a year of us, you know, being impacted by a pandemic in which we know the very early data is showing us an increase in anxiety and depression in suicidal ideation in our young people. And what we know from previous experiences of catastrophic um, experiences like, for instance, take Harvey is a good example, Hurricane Harvey, which impacted just, you know, relatively a small um, group of people when you think about the global experience we're having. But just if you even look that as a model, um, they had this catastrophic, traumatic experience that impacted everyone in that community. And um, they're still feeling the aftermath of that in terms of the mental health impact of that. So I think we're going to see that happening for us globally as well. And, and that's the difficult part. When you had an experience like Harvey, um, the great news about Harvey was the rest of us living in Austin and El Paso and other places, right, we, we could, could rally help. around mm -hmm. them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, the Cajuns could come in their boats and, you know, there was this rallying around that. And we're instead having this experience where we're all having the same collective experience of anxiety, stress, grief. And, um, you know, I think, I, I don't know about you, Amy, but I know for me, seeing the vaccines coming out at the end of the year, I got so hopeful. I was like, mm -hmm. okay, yay. And we all went into the beginning of the year, you know, hopeful, and I, I'm still hopeful, let me be clear. But now we're hearing, oh, and there's these variants now. And now they're here in the United States. And now we're not clear if the vaccines will have the same impact. And, you know, there's sort of, I sort of went through in the last couple of weeks, this sense of like, okay, maybe I have been having this conversation where at the beginning of the pandemic, I said, you know, this is going to be um, a sprint six to eight weeks from now, like right in our offices. <laughs> and then at some point I was like, oh man, this is a marathon. Okay. So we just have to be ready. Cause this is a long haul. Now I'm like, okay, now we're doing like Iron Man, whatever right. is like the most intense Iron Man. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Um, and we need to understand that that is having a huge impact on, and I don't think anyone is going to go unscathed. All of us will have some impact on our mental health because we're only human and this ongoing isolation. I think mm -hmm. even before this pandemic hit, we had this experience globally of loneliness, you know, that I think came out of the fact that for many people, they were only connected through technology to people. And so lots of loneliness going on and all of that is getting exacerbated. I think we have kids who are unable to go to school and there's that in itself is a complex issue. You could do a whole podcast on that. Right. right? Um, and so 
you know, all of this is going to have long-term impacts and it's not going to be, oh, six months from now, we're going to feel it. And then we'll address it. And it will be like, this is going to be going on for, we're going to feel the impacts of this for the next couple of, you know, two or three years or beyond. Um, And for some people, it will trigger lifelong, you know, health issues for them, both COVID related, but also mental health related. So there's no better time than now for us to be living in a community that is focusing on being better equipped to respond to these kinds of crises. And right. what we don't need, I don't know about you, but if I'm having a heart attack and I call 911, I want a health professional to show up, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we think about mental health as a health issue, if I'm in the midst of a mental health crisis, I want a health professional to show up, not a police officer, because you know what? You can do 40 hours and 80 hours of training with a police officer that still does not equip them to be a mental health professional. And I think when we put officers in that kind of um, situation, in many respects, we're not really, we should be better supporting our officers in that respect by not putting them in those situations where we're expecting them to be social workers when they're not. My daughter's a social worker. So it's like four years of college and then all of this training and it's, it's not you know, 80 hours of sitting in a classroom and you're a social worker. So um, I think it's really important. And I think when we go back to the complexity of brain health issues, um, you know, the importance of really having health professionals respond to health crisis is so important. And so I do think we're moving in the right direction with that. Right. I, I want to talk briefly about the uh, committee that you serve on. Mm-hmm. Um always like to explain for folks kind of how our local government system works and, and who's uh, working on these issues. Um, the name is kind of long and I've already forgotten it. Could you remind me? It's Travis County. <laughs> Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice Advisory Committee. So to be clear, it's an advisory committee. And so we do have our own charter. And to be honest with you, I think in, we have just in the last year or two gotten better about um, connecting with our, um, with our Travis County judges, you know, for, with Travis County judge Brown and the County commissioners and our city council members to make, to elevate their awareness of our existence and the work that we're doing, because talk about sometimes it being a systemic issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think along the way, one of the things that was broken was I'm not sure that public officials really knew that we existed and what the work was that we were doing. So we're trying to do a much better job of reporting to them in terms of our recommendations and what we're working on. Um, so I think that's good news, but that um, I can get you the full um, you know, layout of who's on there, but on that committee are mental health advocates like myself, um, you know, folks from Communities for Recovery, which is another mental health organization that also looks at both mental health and substance use. So they focus on dual diagnosis issues. Um, we've got ECHO, but then we've also got APD, Travis County Sheriff's Office, Integral Care, hmm. um, the County Attorney's Office, the District Attorney's Office, the Public Defender's Office. The, you know, so you've got all of the folks that are involved in both the criminal justice aspect of this and also the behavioral health and then some advocates as well. So you've got um, grassroots leadership that's there as well. Um, And then we recently added um, just an individual who has had their own both mental health and substance use issues and has been incarcerated previously. So bringing in again, that peer perspective, that lived experience. Um, So uh, I think there's about 26 entities organizations um, that are represented on that committee. 
And what do you all uh, work on? You make recommendations to our local government agencies. What kind of work do you do? So the kind of work that, for instance, the current work that we're doing is really looking at that intercept model that I mentioned. So we're breaking that down. So now there are work groups for every intercept model. So we're really then hashing that out. What really doing a deep dive at each of those intercepts, what is going on, what needs to be addressed so that those work groups can make recommendations um, to the whole committee. And then hopefully that allows us to then make recommendations to the city council, the county commissioners as well. The other thing that we're working on, and I sit on this work group around data. So, and I think this is critically important. Um, this understanding that using and making data-driven recommendations and approaches to how we're, um, how we're addressing gaps in the system is really important. Um, how do you know if something's actually working if you're not tracking the data? How do you know if there's really a problem if you're not actually looking at the data? Otherwise, you're looking at just anecdotes or our own feelings about this or you're projecting. So I think that's really important. So last year, I think the pandemic has me confused. Mm -hmm. um, 2019, we worked also with Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Um, this group did, this committee did to help us in terms of figuring out um, creating a dashboard. So we're currently working on that. We have a dashboard. We're trying to make it a little more robust and really looking at what are the things that we're tracking? How are we tracking it? Who's responsible for it? Um, because then we wanna be able to create a dashboard that other entities then can say, hey, I'm really curious, like what do these numbers look like? or I think this is additional data we ought to be collecting. And so that there's a real intentionality around how we're utilizing data as well, which I think is really important. And I think is um, creates the potential for us to then derive change because it is data-driven and again, not, hey, we think this is a good idea. Well, good ideas are great, but what's the data behind it? And so even tracking some of the decisions we've made. So I think, um, we know that one of the reasons we were able to get to this next level of engagement in the 911 call center, we were already testing it, right? So some of that was to look at the data coming out of that. How many calls were actually coming in? How many of them were getting um, actually diverted? What's the need there? You know, really looking at some of that data helps then drive additional um, resources being allocated to those kinds of changes. So we're doing yeah. some of that work as well. And so we, we talked about a lot of the work that's, that's been done. Um, and it, it's, it's a lot. I mean, I think, I do think it is, you know, this component that we've, we've gotten really far in, but as we look into the future, kind of before we close here, um, where do you see us going or in your dream world? <laughs> um, what, what are kind of our, our next steps that we as a community, um, can take? Yeah. Um, and I will answer that question, but I do want to say one more thing about that committee. I think it's yeah. real important that people understand um, those 26 entities, groups that are as part of that committee, um, that work that they do with the um, committee and the work groups that are broken out. We all do that as sort of extra work for all yep. of us. I mean, this is not something that any of us are getting paid for, or for many of us, it's not in our job description. Um, and I think that's really important to know that the people that gather around that table gather around that table because we all have a passionate commitment to this work and to seeing the change happen. And I think that's important for our community to know because I think it's often easy to say, nobody cares, nobody's paying attention. Um, many times what we're working against is systems that are difficult to change and laws that also need to be changed to make it easier for us to 
um, address some of the gaps and issues. So I think that's really important. But in terms of the big picture, like what in my ideal world, right? I think we'd continue to look at again, um, expanding and, and making sure that we have a robust, and I say we in terms of social workers, um, you know, clinicians have a robust presence in the 911 call center, because I do think that that's a intercept zero, you know, um, piece that I think is incredibly important to prevent people from moving into the criminal justice system. But then I think you almost go into like the negative one place, whereas how can we as a community ensure that someone never even has to make that call? And I think one of the ways that we do that is some of the more complex issues um, around issues around housing, I think is incredibly important. One of the things that we know is that oftentimes people end up in the Austin State Hospital system, for instance, or, or jail, right? Because of their mental health issues. And there's no, um, if you've had any kind of um, felony or any kind of previous incarceration, you know, sometimes it makes it very difficult for you to access housing. So then we want people to maintain their mental health, but it is really hard to do when you don't have a roof over your head. Um, and you don't have some of the supports that are needed. So I think models like uh, Integral Cares Oak Springs, are you familiar with that model at all? Um, so that's there. It's one of the housing first models that we have in Austin, one of the very first. So um, I think that's 50 units. Um, some number of them are dedicated for people who are experiencing chronic homelessness and also have mental health issues. And then there's some portion of them, I believe, for veterans. Um, can you and explain I, what housing first means for housing? For folks a housing there? first model is really about oftentimes we have supportive housing or other kinds of permanent, different kinds of housing models, but many times even they have a model in which, again, if you've had any kind of criminal justice involvement or, you know, um, there's certain things that can keep you from accessing that. Housing first model says we're not going to look at that kind of um, that's not what we're looking at in determining someone's ability to access housing, because we know that that getting housing first means exactly that. Let's house you first, and then let's help you address all the other issues. Um, you know, employment, mental health, physical health issues. You know, all of those wraparound services. So I think that's one of the beauties of a house of the housing first model that we have here in Austin is that it has all these wraparound services to ensure that people have everything that they need to be successful in their housing. So I think that kind of expansion of housing first models, um, incredibly helpful to ensure that people have access to all the services that they potentially need. Um, you know, I think it's heartbreaking let me tell you that some of the families that I work with, um, many of these are, interestingly enough, older adults who have adult children living with serious mental illness who are very involved and supportive. They've come to our classes. They participate in our support groups. They do advocacy. Like These are super engaged people. And it's incredibly frustrating to them because in spite of all of their engagement and all of their involvement, they still many times cannot access the complete level of care that their loved ones need. Um, because for many people, you really do need long-term um, housing, long-term treatment to really be able to, um, to avoid being in incarcerated. So going back to the model that I was telling you about, like, you know, <laughs> the pendulum swung in the complete opposite direction. So it used to be a time when, yes, we probably had too many people institutionalized who didn't need to be institutionalized. Um, and now 
literally the only people that oftentimes have access to state hospitals are people who have actually um, committed a felony. Like we've become this forensic model of state hospitals. So for people who maybe need a month or potentially years of housing and support in order to, to live um, productively and successfully because they have such serious mental health issues, they have no place to go. If they're lucky, they have families who again are engaged with them, but even then sometimes they're still not able to access the level of care that they need. So I will tell you, I have worked with families who've basically said, there are days when I just hope that maybe, you know, my son, my daughter, you know, that they do end up in jail because at least I know that they're in a safe place. And that's heartbreaking, horrible. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. So that's what I sort of long for is that, um, that we understand that not all people need long-term residential treatment for their serious mental health issues, but there is a small population of people that do. And we should have that level of long-term residential treatment available to people um, and sort of step-down housing. It's not, it's not state hospital kind of level, but maybe it's apartment living with, again, supportive, um, you know, environments that provide other supports of various kinds, you know, school, you know, uh, educational opportunities, work opportunities. Um, And I think that if we were to invest in that kind of level of treatment and care and housing, um, we would be spending a lot less in our jail systems doing a very inadequate job because honestly, usually really what's happening right now is those same people just keep cycling through the system. Um, And instead of spending all of those resources on keeping them cycling this endless cycle of going through the system, um, what would it look like if we invested that same amount of resources and really invested in this kind of um, system of care that really ensured that we um, address the right level of care for that person, depending on what their needs are. And yeah. that's, that would be the ideal. Um, and just lastly, you know, one thing I always like to ask our guest is, Um, If folks are passionate about these issues and want to get more engaged in the process or are interested in learning more about your organization, about NAMI, um, what do you suggest? What are some, what are the best ways for people to stay involved? Yeah, well, I would certainly encourage them to um, visit our website. So NAMI, that's N-A-M-I, Central TX.org. Again, N-A-M-I, Central TX.org. Um, whether you're looking to get involved or just looking for resources, Mm -hmm. our website just has um, just a plethora of different kinds of crisis resources, regular resources, resources about what's available right now in the midst of COVID for free support groups and other kinds of, you know, support. So great resources available there. We do have an advocacy page, so you can sign up to receive our regular newsletters. Um, We do have an advocacy committee. So NAMI Central Texas has an advocacy committee that meets about once a month. And it's a great way to get continuing education on what is out there in the community um, and then get connected to ways to actually be more actively involved in advocacy work. So um, so just look us up. We're, we're happy to bring you in and have you engage with us. And whether that's learning or figuring out how to advocate, um, we're happy to support you in that. We're also very fortunate that in Austin, NAMI, Texas, our state affiliate is in Austin. They are sort of take the lead in terms of state level um, advocacy. So we, we really partner with them quite a bit and they're, they're very, we're very involved with them as well. So especially now in the midst of a legislative session. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I can uh, feel your passion and I appreciate it. I am a big fan of folks that get engaged with their community. And like you said, volunteer their time to, to work, to make it better. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Amy, for elevating the conversation and creating opportunities for people to learn more and, um, and to also, I think, just hopefully get excited and inspired by some of the, the changes that are happening in our community. So now that we have this mental health services fourth option for 911 calls, what comes next? As always, there's still a lot of work to do and the system is far from perfect. Some of the biggest questions that still need to be asked and solved include, what are the guidelines for deciding when a police officer should be dispatched to a mental health emergency? Who is in charge of deciding if a situation is dangerous enough to warrant bringing a police officer? What role should the family of an individual experiencing a mental health crisis play in determining whether or not a police officer needs to be on the scene? Do we have enough qualified staff at the 911 call center floor to handle all the mental health-related calls? And should the 911 call center be made into a separate department, independent of APD? And most importantly, how do we ensure that our local community, especially those who have been in these situations in the past and have the lived experience, have a stronger say in answering these questions and continuing to shape our local mental health diversion programs. That's where the City Community Reimagining Public Safety Task Force comes into play. We've mentioned this group in a few of our other policing episodes. Um, This is the group made up of representatives from local advocacy, grassroots, grassroots and justice groups um, that is advising and guiding the city through the larger reimagining public safety process. They have a 911 work group that is dedicated to this very issue. And so at their February meeting, they actually met with the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and they had a lengthy discussion about where they would like to see this work go in the future. For Chris Harris, who works at Texas Appleseed, is a member of the task force, and he's been on this podcast before, the change has simply been too slow. Here's what he said at that meeting. The status of things is extremely disappointing. Um, that referring back to a 2019 report at this stage might as well be 2005. Um, the fact that Denver started after us and released a progress report literally <laughs> last week about you know a new program that's only serving part of town during business hours has done 750 calls, no arrests, no one hurt, no one no one killed. Uh, the own police chief is saying it saved lives, non, non-police response. It's, it's, this is not a model <laughs> that we're building right now. This is, this is, a, this is from the past. Uh, and, and that's why this, the work of this task force is so important. And we need to continue on with what we're doing. And, and, and this is real, you know, untreated mental health. You're 16 times more likely to be shot by the police. Um, severe untreated mental health, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center, made up half of police killings. Okay, so we need a non-police response. And, and the fact that we're still working off an old plan to me is indicative of the lack of progress that we've made and, and why you know the work of this task force is so important and the recommendations that come out of this task force uh, uh, need to be adhered to. So where does that leave us? 
I think that Don Handley, who serves as Chief Operations Officer of Integral Care, summed it up pretty well also at that February City Community Reimagining Public Safety Task Force meeting. Here's what she said. Just to get to this past week, being able to offer the mental health option, is it perfect? No. Does it need work? Absolutely. Is it working already? You bet. So it's only going to get better and it's going to get better with the feedback from this group. And we absolutely want a non-law enforcement response to a healthcare crisis. And we, we need to work towards that at 100%. And that's our show for today. You can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. As always, you can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. You gotta